Welcome to the Let's Think About That podcast, where we don't just react. We'll break it down and think about it. We're going to talk news, the law, sports, whatever we're thinking about. We're your host, Ed Yeager and Lee Allen. Lee, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Ed. Hope you are. And, you know, it has been interesting to see how this podcast has been so relevant since we started. We've... T- we, we've been doing this about three months. Our first episode, well, I guess it was episode number two because we did kind of an intro episode, but our first really substantive episode, we broke down the new Georgia voting laws, which have been in the news. And just a couple of days ago, U.S. government sued Georgia over that. We were prescient. That's right. So I, I got a little clip here. Actually, it's three clips, but I put them together. Uh, the first one is Merrick Garland, the attorney general, talking about why they sued. And then the next two are clips from uh, the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, and what his response is to the federal lawsuit. Uh, it, sound quality on that is not quite as good. He was speaking in a live event in Savannah, but I think, uh, I think the purpose comes through pretty well. And I promised that we are scrutinizing new laws that seek to curb voter access and that where we see violations of federal law, we will act. In keeping that promise, today the Department of Justice is suing the state of Georgia. Our complaint alleges that recent changes to Georgia's election laws were enacted with the purpose of denying or abridging the right of black Georgians to vote on account of their race or color in violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Let me be clear, the DOJ lawsuit announced today is legally and constitutionally dead wrong. Their false and baseless accusations are quite honestly disgusting. But I can't say that I'm surprised. The President and his administration, Stacey Abrams, and their far-left allies have lied about the Election Integrity Act from the beginning. And the Election Integrity Act is the uh, the name of the Georgia law which changes or reforms voting in the state. You know, I looked at the federal lawsuit, and essentially they string together a bunch of historical events from Georgia, as well as some kind of unsighted quotations for that are more recent, and then they slander everybody in the state as being racist. It's going to be interesting. Now, this is probably only the first of several lawsuits because a number of states are yeah, looking think. at uh, voting changes. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, um, it's going to be even more interesting uh, with the situation in New York and the primary and the problem with the electronic ballots there. I, it's, I mean, we're headed for election controversy for a while, I think. Yeah, it seems like it would be so simple. But New York has made it more difficult with this ranked choice voting. And we didn't talk about that before, but it seems to be a mess the way they're doing it up there. Yeah, I mean, hundred well, there's 135,000 test ballots that got counted in the primary, um, and uh, the, I, I was I followed Brad Crone, who I think is a very smart and savvy uh, guy, uh, even though I don't typically agree with his Democrat candidate clients often. But uh, he he was saying this morning that um, he thinks that the debacle in New York has pretty much killed. The, the ranked voting effort for a while. Um, and it is, you know, people don't, it, I don't know that it's resonating with people because it hasn't got a lot of publicity. And it's, uh, it, it's basically, as I understand it, 
an effort to avoid a primary. Avoid runoff. That's what I mean. I I, I said primary. I meant runoff. Um, I vote for this person, but if he or she doesn't win my second choice and and maybe even beyond second choices, um, and um, so it's kind of like weighted voting, I guess. Well, you know, one interesting aspect about the the New York situation is that the whole race is the Democrat primary because that's going to select who the mayor is for for all intents and purposes. Mm -hmm. Although I think Curtis Slee was making a run at it from the Republican side. But, uh, you know, after Democrats have criticized Republicans for uh, doubting election results, their uh, top uh, candidates started doubting election results, and he was right. Yeah, that's the uh, Eric Adams guy that was a police officer. Right. right. And Sleeway is, uh, he did get the Republican nomination, but as you said, he, he's got basically no chance in the general election. Uh, but the Georgia thing is is quite interesting. You know, Stacey Adams, I'm sorry, Stacey Abrams has been back and forth with regard to a number of stances that she's taken in the last few months, uh, principally not only with regard to the all-star game boycott, but in, in this case, as it relates to voting, with regard to, to ID. Um, she seems to have waffled, as I understand her position. It's a mess. I'm satisfied that the U.S. Supreme Court will probably have to uh, sort it out, draw a line, make some law. Well, that's interesting timing on the, the uh, Department of Justice lawsuit against Georgia because after they filed that lawsuit, within, a, I guess, two days, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on a somewhat similar case from Arizona, and it was a 6-3 to three decision affirming uh, the Arizona law. As you know, uh, maybe the listeners uh, know as well, but the states, according to the Constitution, have in some ways plenary control over elections. There's There are efforts, H.R. 1 and, and others at times, to, as we said last week or week before, take that away from the states. And then here's Georgia, tweaking, for lack of a better word, their election laws, and the federal government is saying, uh, you can't do that. Um, And as you said, string together some historical references and then conclude that everyone in Georgia is a racist. Well, you know, what I'm wondering about with this case is if the federal government doesn't want this lawsuit in place before the next governor's race. Tell me what you're thinking. Well, it seems to me that they may want to make this an issue within the governor's race because Stacey Abrams is probably going to run again. She can use it to stir up her base. And then if they're lucky and she wins, then they get a consent order in place. Yeah, of course, it, it also may stir up the base of, of the Republican Party. Right. Um, and, and cause um, some uh, folks who might otherwise not come to the polls, come to the polls and vote against her or vote for the Republican candidate, and I'm not, I'm not up on Georgia law. Is is Kemp eligible for re-election? Can he run? I again? believe he can. Yeah. Okay. Of course, he's he's got his own problems within the within the base of the Republican Party as a result of the stances that he took during the post November third um, election controversy, um, and uh, is. Um, uh, he may have a primary opponent. Who knows? And he may not be the uh, ultimate nominee from the Republican Party in Georgia. And she may not be the ultimate Democrat nominee. But someone else could That's use right. this. And, and here's the other thing that I'm thinking is that some of our listeners may not know what consent orders are. 
but they're often, uh, well, by their nature, they are to settle lawsuits where both parties agree on certain things. Here's the ugly secret about consent orders or consent judgments, is that often if you have a party in power or an individual in power who can't get what they want through the legislative body or through the public, they don't mind a friendly lawsuit, and then they'll settle it, and they have to comply with that lawsuit. And they, and they get what they want via the court order that they agreed to. Exactly. Often done with funding That's an programs. excellent point. Right. Yeah, it's all, that is an excellent point. Yeah, it's often done with funding programs or making changes within procedures that they couldn't otherwise pass. So that's what I'm thinking this may be about. And that is uh, that's excellent work, Ed. It really is. That's impressive. So we'll see what happens with that. The other way that this show has been prescient has been with the NCAA, because we just talked about that Supreme Court decision last week, and they're moving pretty quickly now. Yes, they are. You see, the there's a wide receiver at Arkansas, and, and I saw this on the Internet. I assume it's true. But he this afternoon, he signed a deal with, uh, I think it's PetSmart, uh, to be in their ads with his dog as an endorsement. There's an AP story that talks about this, and um, just just a brief summary of it. But they say that the uh, NCAA Board of Directors approved one of the biggest changes in the history of college athletics Wednesday, clearing the way for nearly a half million athletes to start earning money based on their fame and celebrity status. And they're also allowed to hire agents for that purpose. Yeah. yeah. Arkansas wide receiver Trey Knox and his Husky Blue have inked to deal with PetSmart. And Mr. Knox said, quote, I've always been proud to be an Arkansas football player, but I'm just as proud to be a dog dad. And uh, <laughs> I, guess it's, I guess he's got to deal with PetSmart. Um, did you see uh, Reggie Bush has now – in his camp have sent letters to the NCAA and to the Heisman Trust asking that the Heisman Trust reinstate his Heisman Trophy and the NCAA put his records back in the record book. Um, he is alleged, and I think probably has admitted, receiving somewhere around $300,000 under the table. And some some expert opined this afternoon that had this, this NCAA rule been in place at the time uh, he was at Southern Cal, he would have made between four and six million dollars a year while in college. While in college and an amateur, and that's a Pandora's box they've opened. It really is, and and I think they it's going to get out of control very quickly. Um, and I'm not saying that's better or worse than where we are now. I'm just saying it's there are unintended consequences, and it is going to get out of control long before football season starts. Well, after our last show, I was talking with. Uh, with one of the fellows from the 8-Minute Podcast who has a more libertarian view, and his view is more or less, hey, let them make what they can. Uh, you know, I can understand that, but I'm just concerned that you know, college athletics as we know it is uh, it's going to change. Yes, it is. Um, and, and as you said, it's, it's all come about fairly quickly. And, and I think in large part because the NCAA sort of – played ostrich in a lot of ways after the O'Bannon lawsuit that, that sort of precipitated a lot of this sympathy for uh, for athletes uh, and this idea that the colleges were making millions and millions and millions of dollars on the, quote, backs of student athletes and student athletes were not allowed to enjoy the fruits um, beyond the scholarship and the 
sort of minimal stipends and things that we talked about last week. And, and now it's gotten away from them and they're playing catch up. But from what I can tell, the new rules regarding name, image and likeness, such as the Arkansas wide receiver working for PetSmart, doesn't affect the NCAA institution still making millions and billions of dollars. That's right. It just gives a, a, a market, if you will, legality and allows them to engage directly with the student athlete. And as long as it doesn't violate either the conference rules or state law in that particular state, a booster of a particular school as defined by the NCAA, which is defined very broadly, can employ uh, an athlete at his or her favorite school uh, for endorsements or, or that kind of thing and no longer run afoul of NCAA laws or rules. Um, and so the old days of the $100 handshake will be, I guess, checks now. Well, have you seen anything about recruiting? Have not. Um, I did see this as a good summary, I thought. It was on Front Office Sports. Uh, they posted this on Twitter, and it says, NCAA athletes can monetize name, image, or likeness through hosting camps, private lessons, merchandise, podcasts, commercials, memorabilia, autographs, streaming, Substack and Patreon, Shopify and Etsy, small business and social media. And, you know, one of the things that we've seen in recent years has been a prohibition against athletes selling bowl game jerseys or uh, the shoes that uh, they're provided by the school and so forth, which quite frankly is a is a ticky tack rule and kind of nonsensical in my opinion. If, it, if it's yours, you ought to be able to do what you want with it. Um, and, but uh, all that now is perfectly fine. And, and I don't have a problem with that necessarily, but um, you know, the notion of a college player making, as I said, in Reggie Bush's case, an estimated four to $6 million a year because of his or her status. And frankly, we're talking about he's not she's. I mean, women's sports are not going to generate the incomes that, that the men's football and basketball will. That may be good. It may be bad, but it's a fact. Um, because of his position or status as a college athlete is hard to get your head around. Well, it is. And to go to what you just said, women's sports don't contribute or generate revenue for the college. But who's to say that, uh, you know, some individual uh, women's soccer player in a college doesn't have some marketability for uh, oh, some no merchandise doubt. or softball? No doubt. The, the, Mia, the, the, the next Mia Hamm. Uh, or, or even a, 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 you know, a few, a handful of basketball players, yeah. um, you know, from from UConn or some Stanford or Notre Dame or some some basketball powerhouse, but they won't generate the kind of money that the men football players and basketball players. Although there won't be that many football and basketball players, in my opinion, it'll be you know a relative handful. I mean, I, I saw somewhere somebody predicted maybe fifty. Uh, would make serious money, and the rest would be either nothing or just a pittance. But what do you do with the I mean, school's revenue? Because isn't that the next lawsuit that's waiting to happen? I think it is. I mean, it's a it's a fat target, and it it is uh, the the same logic that says players ought to participate says they ought to participate fully and get paid. And if the right and 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 so what today's rule did was 
was changed, or maybe it was yesterday, I don't remember when that rule came out, but, but what it did was opened up a new market. It didn't deal with the existing market, which is the TV money and so forth that the schools are currently getting. And, and, you know, there's a certain logic to your, to your suggestion that, yeah, that's the next, that's the next battleground. See, to me, that's less of an issue if they were to say, okay, every player in such and such sport gets this amount, these players get the other mm-hmm. amount. Hey, it's hard to object to that. Every school's more equal, but they, you, you could regulate it. And, and and it wouldn't be ripe for cheating. Well, they've, yeah, they've created the Wild West here because there's so much wiggle room in this that, that schools are going to start recruiting players by the, the side deals that they can cut for them. Absolutely. The whole situation with, with the agents in the basketball controversy that's ongoing, and, and you wonder what, what happens to those cases now, uh, the Louisville, Arizona, uh, at all basketball squabbles about Adidas and – I think principally Adidas in this instance paying players and so forth. I mean, does the NCAA just give up? Say, well, they can do it now. Like, you know, the fact that they couldn't do it then doesn't uh, doesn't really excite us uh, about prosecuting that anymore. I don't know. I don't know either because I think there was some quasi illegal activity in that also. Well, there was, um, but but uh, it's all based on amateurs not getting paid for their for their sports. Uh, accomplishments and, and talents and this allows that to happen gonna be interesting the the lead up to football season this year will be even more more interesting more detailed uh and and more surprising i think in a lot of ways than than in the past for that reason and who's going to be the first player that you know fails a class because they were all filming a commercial or something yeah and 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 you know like like our our, our guy from arkansas I mean, are they going to say in the commercial that, that he's an Arkansas, University of Arkansas Razorback football player? And if so, does the University of Arkansas get a, a cut? Are they going to use uniforms and logos and things like that? And if so, certainly they're going to have to get a cut. Or they'll use, or at least they'll use say they don't want Yeah, one. they'll use fake jerseys, which are the same colors, but they're a little bit different, but everybody right. know what they really are. And Yeah, and airbrush the, the Razorback off the helmet, yeah. you know, that yeah. kind of thing. And this episode, we're debuting a new segment called The People's Law School. We, the people. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. And I'm really excited about this, Lee. I think this is a, a great thing. You know, uh, one thing as a lawyer that has bothered me for a long time is that I would see people in court who couldn't really handle legal issues on their own. And some of that's because as lawyers, we've made it too complicated. Some of that's because of the educational system now doesn't teach people how to speak on their own behalf. As a, a lawyer, I know used to tell his clients say how you feel and ask for what you want, but most people can't do that. But the idea of educating people more on uh, civics and legal topics is just something that I think is well past due. It is. It truly is. I'm looking forward to this. So we were thinking we would just start with the basics. The basic foundation of law in the United States is the Constitution. And it is the supreme law. So the U.S. Constitution was enacted in 1787. 
Uh, there's been a process for amendments, but it's only been amended a, a handful of times, like 27 times in all of those years. Uh, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land and sets up the structure of the federal government in three branches, the judicial, executive, and legislative, as well as the checks and balances. And most of the states have followed the U.S. Constitution with similar state constitutions. In a lot of ways, they're very similar. They all have their own little quirks and, and subtle differences, but uh, certainly every, every state has the three branches of government. Um, and, and every state has them separate to some extent. You know, there's, there's no parliamentary season, uh, uh, system in any state like there is in the, uh, in the United Kingdom where uh, the legislature and the executive are combined. And uh, the states have their own constitutions, which can't conflict with the U.S. Constitution, but otherwise is, they're free to do what they want. Uh, and then just as Congress passes legislation for the federal government, the state legislatures pass legislation for the state governments. Then they have their own judges, and the federal courts have their judges as well. Is that fair enough? Fair summary? I think that's a fair summary. And, you know, I think part of the so what to this is that when you see decisions from the U.S. Supreme Court, they are based on something in the U.S. Constitution. They don't just adjudicate facts and decide who they think has the best or most compelling case, but they have to examine the Constitution in some basis to find to, 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 to resolve the matter. The vast, vast majority of cases that the U.S. Supreme Court hears, they hear because they choose to hear it. They don't, they're not obligated to hear it. There are certain exceptions, and, and that's maybe we can get into that in a later show. Uh, but most of the cases are there on what we call a writ of certiorari, which is discretionary review. The court votes to take the case because they want to deal with a, an issue uh, that relates to the U.S. Constitution. And the Supreme Court is, by virtue of the Supreme Court deciding a very famous case in the early years of our republic, the final say uh, on the constitutionality of federal and state and local government uh, actions. There's a school of thought from uh, our founders that um, the co-equal branches uh, are important and the Supreme Court has no more authority to declare something unconstitutional or constitutional than, than does the executive branch or than does the legislative branch. I'm not sure how that would work. Um, but as a result of the Marbury versus Madison decision, the Supreme Court, by and through Chief Justice John Marshall, uh, kind of took upon itself to um, to be able to declare acts uh, of of uh, Congress or the or the executive um, unconstitutional and thus uh, unenforceable, and and for lack of a better word, strike them from the books, not necessarily literally, but but uh, uh, in effect, it's a legal and concept course, known as judicial review. That's exactly right. Where every act of of, a, of an official is in a, in in the legislative or executive branch, and the lower courts is subject to review by the higher court, and the higher court can agree uh, or they can strike it down. And of course, the states, all of whom have. A, a court system of their own, the states are the final authorities on issues of state constitutionality 
insofar as it doesn't conflict with the federal constitution. So, for instance, by example, the case yesterday, and I'm not sure it was necessarily decided on constitutional grounds, but in Pennsylvania, where the Pennsylvania Supreme Court overturned the Bill Cosby conviction, um, that ends there because it's a question of Pennsylvania law. Uh, and so the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't, doesn't have the opportunity and would not take the opportunity to review that decision for compliance with the U.S. Constitution because no one is, they haven't triggered that because no one said it violates the U.S. Constitution. It's a, simply a question of state law. But you know, what most people think of as court, which you see on TV or maybe you've had to go to court, that's at the trial court level. And the trial court is a finder of fact. And the, the process for finding that fact through a jury trial or a bench trial, the court arrives at certain facts and makes a decision. If there's an appeal, the appeals courts look at legal issues, not factual issues. And, and they're stuck with the facts as found in the lower court by the trier of fact, be it a judge or a jury. In other words, they accept those unless it's so grossly wrong that, that it could not be right. They accept the findings of the lower court as to the facts and simply determine whether the law is properly applied to the facts as found by the lower court. So that's kind of our introduction to the People's Law School. and. We'll, we'll be covering other topics more in depth, but if, if anyone listening to this has specific questions or, or, or ideas that they would like to hear covered, please reach out to us at comments at letsthinkpodcast.com. We would love that. So so what's on your radar for this next week, Lee? Well, I don't know. Um, got a holiday week, a holiday weekend. Um, and so, you know, I guess uh, being a little bit of a conspiracy theorist, I wonder what might be dumped uh, in the news uh, media tomorrow, uh, late tomorrow afternoon. Um, and I say that in, in jest. Uh, you know, I, I think we need to keep an eye on uh, the kind of things we've been we've been looking at. I mean, I, I doubt anything happens uh, this quickly with regard to the Georgia lawsuit, but it could. Um, I, I am interested in the in the. Uh, the situation with the New York primary uh, and those votes and how, how that's being handled. And uh, I think uh, the, the situation in Miami with the condominium that collapsed. Yeah, it's a horrible situation. Um, it's just, yeah, it's terrible. And I, I saw today the, um, the IDF has sent some people who are experts in recovery in that situation and there's a story in the New York Post that I saw this afternoon where they, they uh, being the IDF, have this computer capability to make these 3D maps and images that they use to find terrorists from satellite photographs or uh, aerial reconnaissance photographs. And they're using that to try to figure out where uh, the, uh, the victims may be within the rubble. Um, you mean like where was, air pockets it, there were some are? pictures there yeah and 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 if you were in your because it i didn't realize this till earlier this week the building collapsed at one o'clock in the morning yeah yeah and 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 so most people were probably in their beds and then you know if you, if, if if someone was in this bedroom and they're asking families to kind of help with a sort of an idea of the layout of the particular uh, units within the condominium you know based on the physics and the engineering where can we expect that room to have sort of ended up and a lot of it of the technology and, and the way they use it is secret um and i just found it fascinating and then of course you know the 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 fellow who was responsible for 
making the inspection that, that's required of buildings of that age had signed off, I think, in 2020, but, but fairly recently, and then left for another job. And uh, he's been placed on administrative leave by the new uh, governmental entity. That he's, well, maybe he's working in the private sector now. I think he is, but he's been placed on, on leave by them and not allowed to to, to yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, understanding, he was a housing inspector with uh, their code enforcement division. He left and went to another yeah. county. I th- I thought he was still with code enforcement, but he might be wrong. But um, it's not clear from what I've read, you know, what exactly he saw and what he signed off on. But there's some recent pictures. There was a pool contractor who was in there like 36 hours or 48 hours before the collapse, who took pictures in the pool room, and it was. He showed it was in horrible condition. Those were on the Miami Herald website. There's some video of the, I guess, the parking garage and water just pouring through the, the roof there. Real questions and, and about the uh, there's, the status of this building. And, and I saw somewhere where, where, I don't know if that guy, I think it was that guy, but it might have been someone else who said it's going to cost like $15 million to, to, to repair this and so forth. This was before the, the collapse, of course. Um, and, uh, but, but. Uh, as as I'm sure uh, many people and maybe even some of our listeners expected, Jennifer Granholm, who is the Biden cabinet official, uh, whose department would, would sort of, I guess, for lack of a better word, have oversight of such things, has opined that climate change could have partially caused or been a part of the cause for uh uh, this this collapse. And what she said was, well, I don't know, but maybe it was climate change. So when you start yeah, a sentence with, I mean, well, I don't know. Okay, stop talking. Exactly. What what comes after that is is irrelevant. But we got to find somebody to blame. Well, I don't this. know, but there's got to be an agenda here. Right. Don't let a crisis go to waste. Exactly. And somebody's going to be standing when the music stops, and it yeah. may be our our code enforcement guy. Um, and I, I saw Rick Grinnell was tweeting this afternoon saying, well, you know, it's it's possible that some of them may still be alive and, and sort of saying, you know, keep your prayers up and, and maybe we'll, 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 we'll get lucky and, and be able to, to save and rescue some of those folks. Yeah, I hope so. So we'll be watching that this Keep your week. eye on Rick Grinnell for 2024. Uh, what, what did you say? Rick Grinnell for 2024? Yeah, so keep your eye on him. That's what, a presidential candidate? Mm, I'm thinking more vice presidential candidate. Okay. I'm thinking DeSantis Grinnell. Not, not, I'm, I'm not saying that's who I would support. I'm just saying I think that, that may come to be. Interesting. Okay. All right, you heard it here first. But that's another show. What do you have your eye on, Ed? Well, it's a holiday weekend, so maybe we'll have some fireworks here and. um I guess I have one public safety announcement before we leave. Uh, you know, we live at Lake Norman in North Carolina. We've been here for well over 20 years. And every summer, there are several deaths on the lake. What people don't know is that Lake Norman, like most of the lakes in the south, they weren't carved out by big glaciers. They're all man-made. Lake Norman was built in the late 50s, early 60s when they dammed up the Catawba River. Under the lake, there are towns, there are cemeteries, there are trees, Basically, they left it all there and filled it in. So just this week, a young man jumped off a boat to pick something up and never came back. 
I found him a few days mm. later. It happens every summer, though. So, you know, just my word of advice, it's a holiday weekend, middle of the summer. If you're going out, enjoy the lake. It's a lot of fun, but be careful. Wear a life jacket. Stay safe. Absolutely good advice. Well, thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Let's Think About That podcast. You can contact us at comments at letsthinkpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click subscribe on your podcast provider and leave us a review. Mm-hmm.